Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the American History Podcast. Today, in this episode, we're going to be talking about the Progressive Era. It's one of my favorite time periods to talk about in American history because there's a lot of reform, all to try and stamp out corruption and better society and everything. So, let's get started here. So, around this time, looking at kind of the roots of progressive reform, there were a lot of families that got, you know, turned out of their homes. There's a huge army of unemployed on the roads. You see hunger, there's strikes, a lot of bloody violence all across the country. Major depression in 1893 that wrecks through the economy. And it just kind of puts everything into chaos a little bit. So, it's forcing Americans to kind of take stock of their whole new industrial order. They see a society that is becoming more and more increasingly divided by class, race, and ethnicity. They see some kind of common complaints all across these lines as well. Streetcar companies are raising fares while the service is going down. Food processors are... Doctoring up their canned goods with, you know, very harmful additives, politicians skimming money from, you know, the public money that's being contributed. Everyone's going to suffer for that. And so the result we see isn't really one big coherent progressive movement, but just kind of a set of loosely connected reforms that are based on very clear themes that, you know, we want to see efficient government, honest politics, Greater regulation of business, a more orderly economy, social justice for the urban poor and social welfare to protect children, women, workers, consumers. Some progressives are looking to purify society by outlawing outlaw or alcohol and drugs, stamping out prostitution and cleaning up the slums, restricting the flood of new immigrants that are coming in so there's more jobs available for Americans. All of these reforms are trying to make business and government more responsive to the democratic will of the people. So being paternalistic by nature, progressives often impose their solutions no matter what the poor or oppressed saw as their own best interests. Progressives were acting partly out of nostalgia. They wanted to redeem traditional American values as democracy, individual opportunity, and public service. Finally, progressives were wanting to save the country from a second civil war that's born out of class conflict that was starting to erupt in the 1890s. So if their ends were traditional, their means were more modern. They used the systems and methods of the new industrial order, the latest techniques of organization, management, and science to try and fight all the excesses. And kind of getting into progressive beliefs. So progressives, they were modern, moderate modernizers. They accepted the American system as sound, just needs a little bit of adjustment. You know, many were drawing on Darwinian theories of evolution to kind of adjust to the gradual approach of change with the notion of mutation, slowly changing species, evolution was undermined the idea of a fixed set of, you know, unchangeable principles that guided most social thought in the Gilded Age that we kind of talked about in the past few podcasts since the Reconstruction era that ended. And so the Gilded Era 
Some people trace it back to 1860, but it goes all the way up to 1900. And progressives saw a constantly changing landscape of shifting values. They denied the commonly held doctrine of inborn sinfulness and instead were seeing people as having a greater potential for good than for evil. Progressives still had to explain the existence of evil and wrongdoing. Most agreed that human beings were uh, largely, if not wholly, products of society or environment. People went wrong because of what happens to them. If what happened to bad people could be changed, the human potential for good would then be released. And so with an eye to results, progressives asked, they weren't asking, you know, is it true? But instead they're asking, well, does it work? And a philosopher named Charles Pierce called this new way of thinking pragmatism. And pragmatism, it was a philosophical movement that stressed the visible real world results of ideas. So it's great to have a great idea or theory, but you want to see it actually work. You want to see it in action. And so you're going to be judging something based on those practical, practical, hard, tangible facts and results, not just the purity of the principle itself. And the most famous popularizer of pragmatism was going to be a Harvard psychologist named William James. And for him, pragmatism meant looking towards last things, fruits, consequences, facts. And so what mattered most were results to him. And pragmatism led educators, social scientists, and lawyers to adopt new approaches to reform. John Dewey, he was a big educator during the progressive era. He believed that environment shapes the patterns of human thought. And instead of demanding mindless memorization of all these very abstract, unconnected facts... Dewey was trying to make each one of our schools, you know, a community life. And he had what was founded in 1896, a school of pedagogy. He let students unbolt their desks from the floor, move about, learn by doing in cooperation with others so that they could train for real life. A psychologist named John B. Watson, he believed that human behavior could be shaped at will give him control of an infant's world from birth. He said, well, I'll guarantee to take anyone at random and train him to become any specialist I might select, like a doctor, lawyer, artist, merchant, chief, and yes, even beggarman and thief. And so behaviorism starts kind of sweeping all the social sciences and later going to be in advertising, which is the field where Watson will eventually land. And behaviorism is a school of psychology founded by John Watson that measures human behavior and believes it can be shaped. It discounts emotion as being subjective. So lawyers and legal theorists start applying their own blend of pragmatism and behaviorism. Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr., he was appointed to the Supreme Court in 1902. He rejected the idea that the traditions of law were constant and universal. Law was a living organism to be interpreted according to experience and the needs of a changing society. This environmental view of the law, known as social jurisprudence, found a very skilled practitioner in Louis Brandeis. He is going to become very famous for the Brandeis Brief, that is called. But social jurisprudence, sorry, it's a legal theory that emphasizes the importance not merely of precedent, 
you know, looking on those decisions in past cases, but of contemporary social context when you interpret the law. And so Brandeis, he was shaken by the very brutal suppression of the Homestead Steel Strike back in 1892. He quit his corporate law practice and proclaimed himself to be the people's lawyer. The law must guide by the light of reason, he wrote, bringing, which meant bringing everyday life to bear in any court case. And he's going to become very famous with a court case known as Mueller versus Oregon, or maybe it's Mueller. But uh, a laundry owner, Kurt Mueller, he challenged an Oregon law limiting his laundresses to a 10-hour workday. Brandeis defended the statute before the Supreme Court in 1908. His famous brief, the Brandeis brief I mentioned, it contained 102 pages describing the damaging effects of long hours on working women and only 15 pages of actual legal precedent. So in the case, the Supreme Court upheld Oregon's right to limit the working hours of female laborers and thus legitimized the Brandeis brief. But he was using a lot of, like, sociological data. And so he started bringing kind of actual science, you know, with the hard statistics and facts to law with it. So seeing the nation torn by conflict, progressives tried to restore a sense of community through the ideal of a single public interest. Christian ethics were their guide, applied after using the latest scientific methods to gather and analyze data about a social problem. The modern corporation served as their model for how to create a workable organization. Like corporate executives, progressives relied on careful management, coordinated systems, and specialized bureaucracies to carry out reforms. Between 1902 and 1912, a new breed of journalists provided the necessary evidence of fired public indignation up. They investigated wrongdoers, named them in print, described their misdeeds in very vivid detail. Most of these exposés began as articles in mass circulation magazines like McClure's. The magazine stirred a lot of controversy and boosted circulation when the publisher, Samuel McClure, sent reporter Lincoln Stevens to uncover the crooked ties between business and politics. So McClure's published Tweed Days in St. Louis. It was the first of a series of investigative articles in October of 1902, but very soon a Full-blown literature of exposure was covering every ill from unsafe food to child labor. And a very disgusted Theodore Roosevelt thought the new reporters had gone too far and called them muckrakers after the man who raked up filth in the 17th century classic Pilgrim's Progress. But by documenting dishonesty and blight, muckrakers not only aroused people but also educated them. It's likely no broad reform movement of American institutions would have taken place without them. And to move beyond exposing solutions, progressives stressed volunteerism and collective action. They drew on the organizational impulse that seemed everywhere to be bringing people together in new interest groups. Between 1890 and 1920, nearly 400 organizations were founded, many to combat the ills of industrial society. Some, like the National Consumers League, grew out of efforts to promote general causes. In this case, it was protecting consumers and workers from exploitation. Others, we saw, like the National Tuberculosis Association, were aimed at a specific problem. 
And when voluntary action failed, progressives were looking to the government to protect the public welfare. They mistrusted legislators who might be controlled by corporate interests or political machines and were in any case too numerous to monitor. So they strengthened the executive branch by increasing the power of individual mayors, governors, and presidents. But then they would watch those executives very closely. Progressives also drew on the expertise of the newly professionalized middle class. Doctors, engineers, psychiatrists, and city planners, they mounted campaigns to stamp out venereal disease and dysentery, to reform prisons and asylums, to beautify cities. And so we see at local, state, and federal levels, new agencies and commissions staffed by experts start investigating and regulating lobbyists, insurance and railroad companies, public health, even the government itself. So although progressivism ended in politics, it began with social reform, that need to reach out to do something to bring the good society a step closer. Ellen Richards had just such ends in mind when in 1890 she opened the New England Kitchen in downtown Boston. And Richards was a chemist and home economist. She designed the kitchen to sell cheap, wholesome food to the working poor. For a few pennies, customers could choose from a nutritious menu every dish of which had been tested in Richard's laboratory at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, MIT. The New England Kitchen promoted uh, social as well as nutritional reform. So as a household experiment station and center for dietary information, the kitchen tried to educate the poor and Americanized immigrants by showing them how the middle class prepared meals. Wiser and more efficient, women would be freed from the drudgery of unending housework and could seek employment outside the home and thus help their families move up in the world. In the end, the New England Kitchen had more success as an inexpensive eatery for middle-class working women and students than as a resource for the poorer agency of Americanization. But still, Ellen Richards' experiment reflected the typical characteristics of progressive social reform that mix of professionalism with uplift. Socially conscious women entering the public arena in the hope of creating a better world aligned with middle class values. So during the 1890s, crime reporter and photographer Jacob Reese introduced middle class audiences to urban poverty. Writing in very vivid detail in How the Other Half Lives, published in 1890, he brought readers into the tenement. Ugh. Gross. Very sad picture that he paints with it. But accompanying his text were very shocking photos of poverty-stricken Americans, the other half, he called them. He used them to tell a moralistic story, as earlier the English novelist Charles Dickens had used his melodramatic tales to attack the abuses of industrialism. People began to see poverty in a new, more sympathetic light, the fault less of the individual than of social conditions. A haunting naturalism in fiction and painting followed Reese's very gritty photographic essays. In McTeague from 1899 and Sister Carrie, 1900, novelists Frank Norris and Theodore Dreiser spun dark tales of city dwellers struggling to keep, you know, body and soul intact. The Ashkin School painted urban life in all of this very grimy realism. The photographer Alfred Stieglitz and painters John Sloan, George Bellows, they chose slums, tenements, and dirty streets as their subjects. Poverty began to look less ominous and more heartrending. And so we see a new profession, social work, that 
proceeded from this new view of poverty. Social work was developing out of that settlement house movement that we talked about in a couple podcasts ago. But like the physicians from whom they were drawing inspiration, social workers studied very hard data to diagnose the problems of their clients and worked with them to solve their problems. So a social worker's differential casework attempted to treat individuals case by case, each according to the way environment shaped the client. Progressive social reform attracted a great many women seeking what Jane Addams called the larger life of public affairs. In the late 19th century, women found that protecting their traditional sphere of home and family forced them to move beyond it. Bringing up children, making meals, keeping house, and caring for the sick now involve community decisions about schools, the food supply, public health, countless other matters. Many middle and upper middle class women received their first taste of public life from women's organizations like mothers' clubs, temperance societies, and church groups. By the turn of the century, some 500 women's clubs were boasting over 160,000 members. Through the General Federation of Women's Clubs, they funded libraries and hospitals and supported schools, settlement houses, compulsory education, and child labor laws. Eventually, they reached outside the home and family to endorse such controversial causes as women's suffrage and unionization. To that list, the National Association of Colored Women added the special concerns of African Americans, none more urgent than the fight against lynching. The dawn of the century saw the rise of a new generation of women, longer lived, better educated, and less likely to be married than their mothers. They also pursued professional careers for fulfillment. Usually, they turned to professions that involved the traditional female role of nurturing. So, like nursing, teaching, settlement housework, for example. Professionalism joined with the concern for the less fortunate and for equal rights to put women at the forefront of social and political reform. Margaret Sanger sought to free women from chronic pregnancy. Sanger was a visiting nurse on the Lower East Side of New York. She had seen too many poor women overburdened with children, pregnant year after year, sometimes dying through self-induced abortions. And the consequences were crippling. Crippling. Women cannot be on equal footing with men until they have complete control over their reproductive functions, she argued. She became a crusader for what she called birth control. By distributing information on contraception, she hoped to free women from unwanted pregnancies and illegal back-alley abortions that claimed lives. In 1916, Sanger founded the first family planning and birth control clinic in the country. Nine days later, she was arrested and afterward convicted of distributing contraceptive information, which was considered a crime at the time. Single or married, militant or moderate, professional or lay, white or black, more and more middle-class urban women were becoming social housekeepers. From their own homes, they turned to the homes of their neighbors and from there to all of society. Custom and prejudice nonetheless restricted them. The faculty at MIT, for example, refused to allow Ellen Richards to pursue a doctorate. Instead, they hired her to run the Woman's Laboratory for training public school teachers. Like other facilities, the lab was segregated by gender and in this case limited to women. At the turn of the century, only about 1,500 female lawyers practiced in the United States, and in 1910, women made up barely 6% of licensed physicians. Despite the often bitter opposition of families, some feminists tried to destroy the boundaries of women's sphere. In Women in Economics, published in 1898, Charlotte Perkins Gilman condemned the conventions of womanhood, these being femininity, marriage, maternity, domesticity, as enslaving and obsolete. 
she argued for a radically restructured society with large apartment houses, communal arrangements for child rearing and housekeeping, and cooperative kitchens to free women from what she regarded as the bonds of home and family and from their economic dependence on men. And the bigger family of the city, as one woman reformer called it, settlement house workers found that they alone could not care for the welfare of the poor. If industrial America, with all the sooty factories and overcrowded slums, was to be transformed into the good society, individual acts charity would have to be supplemented by government. Laws had to be passed and agencies created to promote social welfare, including improved housing, workplaces, parks, and playgrounds, the abolition of child labor, and the enactment of eight-hour day laws for working women. Women, especially those from social settlement houses, led the way. By 1910, the more than 400 settlement houses across the nation had organized into a loose affiliation, ready to help fashion government policy. With greater experience than men in the field, women led the way. Julia Lathrop, a Vassar College graduate, spent 20 years at Jane Addams' whole house before becoming the first head of the new Federal Children's Bureau in 1912. By then, two-thirds of the states had adopted some child labor legislation, although loopholes exempted countless youngsters from coverage. Under Lathrop's leadership, Congress passed the Keating-Owen Act in 1916, forbidding goods manufactured by children to cross state lines. Florence Kelly, who had also worked at Whole House, spearheaded a similar campaign in Illinois to protect women workers by limiting their workday to eight hours. As General Secretary of the National Consumers League, she also organized boycotts of companies that treated employees inhumanely. Eventually, most states enacted laws restricting the number of hours women could work. Ever since the Conference for Women's Rights held at Seneca Falls in 1848, women reformers have pressed for the right to vote on the grounds of simple justice and equal opportunity. They adopted the slogan, Woman Suffrage, to emphasize the solidarity of women in pursuit of the vote. Progressives embraced women's suffrage by stressing that they saw as the practical results of protesting the home and increasing the voting power of native-born whites. The purer sensibilities of women, an ideal held by conservatives and progressives alike, also would help cleanse the political process of selfishness and corruption. The suffrage movement benefited, too, from new leadership. In 1900, Carrie Chapman Catt became president of the National American Woman Suffrage Association, founded by Susan B. Anthony in 1890. This was the organization that had actually split decades before, and then they reunited under Susan B. Anthony in 1890. But politically astute and a skilled organizer, Ch Carrie Chapman Catt mapped a grassroots strategy of education and persuasion from state to state. She called it the winning plan. Victories came first in the West, where women and men had already forged a more equal partnership to overcome the hardships of frontier life. By 1914, 10 Western states and Kansas had granted women the vote in state elections, as Illinois had in presidential elections. The South furnished the heaviest resistance, clinging to a narrower view of the role of women. The slow pace of progress drove some suffragists to militancy. The shift in tactics had its origins abroad. In England, the campaign for women's suffrage had peaked after 1900 when Emmeline Pankhurst and her daughters turned to violence to make their point that women should be given the right to vote. They and their followers chained themselves to the visitor's gallery in the House of Commons and slashed paintings and museums. They smashed the windows of department stores, broke up political meetings, even burned the houses of members of parliament. British authorities arrested the suffragists and threw them in jail. 
Emmeline Pankhurst was one of them. When the women went on hunger strikes in prisons, wardens tied them down, held their mouths open with wooden clamps, and force-fed them through tubes placed down their throats and noses. Rather than permit the protesters to die as martyrs, Parliament passed the Cat and Mouse Act. It was a statue of doubtful legality that allowed officials to release starving prisoners, then rearrest them once they returned to health. Among the British suffragists was a small American with large, determined eyes. In 1907, barely out of her teens, Alice Paul had gone to England to join the suffrage crusade. When asked why she had enlisted, she recalled her Quaker upbringing. One of their principles is equality of the sexes, she explained. Paul marched arm in arm with British suffragists through the streets of London and in 1910 brought a more militant brand of protest to the United States. Three years later, in 1913, Paul organized 5,000 women to parade in protest at President Woodrow Wilson's inauguration. Wilson himself was skeptical of women voting and favored a state-by-state approach to the issue. Half a million people watched as a near riot ensued. Paul and other suffragists were hauled to jail, stripped naked, and thrown into cells with prostitutes. In 1914, Paul broke with the more moderate National American Women's Suffrage Association and formed the Congressional Union, dedicated to enacting national women's suffrage through a constitutional amendment. She soon allied her organization with Western women voters and the more combative National Women's Party in 1917. On October 20, 1917, Paul was arrested for protesting in favor of a constitutional amendment at the gates of the White House. She received a seven-month sentence. Guards dragged her off to a cell block in the Washington, D.C. jail, where she and others refused to eat. Prison officials declared her insane, but a public outcry over her treatment soon led to her release. Such repression only widened public support for women's suffrage in the United States and elsewhere. So did the contributions to the women of the First World War. Or contributions of women to the war, sorry. (laughs) At home and abroad. In the wake of the war, Great Britain granted women over the age of 30 the right to vote in 1918. Germany and Austria in 1919, and the United States in 1920 through the 19th Amendment. And so overnight, the number of eligible voters in the country doubled. So. So we also start to see a, during this whole era, a rising tide of new immigrants with darker complexions, non-Protestant religions from Southern and Eastern Europe, Worried some native-born Americans, including progressive reformers, anxious over the changing ethnic makeup of the country. In northern cities, progressives often succeeded in reducing the voting power of these new immigrants by increasing residency requirements. The now-discredited science of eugenics lent respectability to the idea that the newcomers were biologically inferior. Eugenicists believed that the heredity determined everything and advocated selectively breeding human beings or sterilizing those deemed unworthy to improve the species or rid it of unwanted traits. By 1914, magazine articles discussed eugenics more than slums, tenements, and living standards combined. In The Passing of the Great Race, published in 1916, amateur zoologist Madison Grant helped to popularize the notion that the lesser breeds threatened to mongrelize America by weakening the gene pool. So powerful was the pull of eugenics that it captured the support of some progressives, including birth control advocate Margaret Sanger, who saw contraception as a way of reducing birth rates among those deemed physically and mentally unfit. 
It also helped to promote the passage of forced sterilization laws in 30 states, a practice confirmed by the Supreme Court in Buck v. Bell in 1927. Most progressives believed in the shaping power of environment and so favored either assimilating immigrants into American society or restricting their entry into the country. Jane Addams stressed the gifts immigrants bought, folk rituals, dances, music, and handicrafts. With characteristic paternalism, the other reformers hoped to Americanize the foreign-born by teaching them middle-class ways. Education was wonky. Progressive educator Peter Roberts, for example, developed a lesson plan for the Young Men's Christian Association, the YMCA, that taught immigrants how to dress, tip, buy groceries, and vote. Less tolerant citizens, often native-born and white, sought to restrict immigration as a way of reasserting control and achieving social harmony. Although usually not progressives themselves, they employ progressive methods of organization, investigation, education, and legislation. Active since the 1890s, the Immigration Restriction League pressed Congress in 1907 to require a literacy test for admission into the United States. Presidents Taft and Wilson vetoed it, but Congress overrode Wilson's second veto in 1917 as war fever raised fears of foreigners to a new peak. Tied very closely to concern over immigrants, many of whom came from drinking cultures, was an attack on saloons. Part of a broader crusade to clean up cities, the anti-saloon campaign drew strength from the century-old drive to lessen the consumption of alcohol. Women made up a disproportionate number of alcohol reformers. In some ways, the temperance movement reflected their growing campaign to storm male domains, in this case, the saloon, and to contain male violence associated with drinking, particularly wife and child abuse. The demon rum, as some reformers called liquor, had to be exorcised from the home as well as the street corner. Reformers considered a national ban on drinking unrealistic and intrusive. Instead, they concentrated on prohibiting the sale of alcohol at local and state levels. Led by the Anti-Saloon League in 18, published, or established sorry, in 1893, a massive publicity campaign bombarded citizens with pamphlets and advertisements. Doctors cited scientific evidence linking alcohol to liver cirrhosis, heart disease, and even insanity. Social workers connected drink to the deterioration of the family, employers to accidents on the job and lost efficiency, and political reformers to corrupt political machines that were often housed in saloons. By 1917, three out of every four Americans lived in dry counties, which had taken the local option of barring the sale of alcohol. Nearly two-thirds of the states had adopted laws outlawing its manufacture and sale. Not all progressives were prohibitionists, but by curtailing the liquor trade, those who were who were, breathed a sigh of relief at having taken some of the profit out of human pain and corruption. They began to mount an even broader assault in the form of a constitutional amendment to prohibit the manufacture, sale, transportation, and importation of all liquor. Immigration restriction and prohibition calmed fears about the newcomers by promising to contain their numbers and their vices, but no vice worried reformers more than prostitution did. In their eyes, it was a social evil that threatened the most vulnerable among them, young women. The Chicago Vice Commission of 1910 estimated that 5,000 full-time and 10,000 occasional prostitutes plied their trade in the city. Other cities, small and large, reported similar findings. An unlikely group of reformers united to fight the vice, feminists who wanted husbands to be as chaste as their wives, social hygienists that 
worried about the spread of venereal disease, and immigration restrictionists who regarded the growth of prostitution as yet another sign of corrupt newcomers. Progressives condemned prostitution but saw the problem in economic and environmental terms. Poverty causes prostitution, concluded the Illinois Vice Commission in 1916. Some reformers saw more active agents at work. Rumors spread of a vast and profitable white slave trade. Men armed with hypodermic needles and drinks filled with knockout drops were said to be drugging and kidnapping young women. Although the average female was hardly in danger of villainous abduction, every city had locked pens where women were held captive and forced into prostitution. By conservative estimates, they constituted some 10% of all prostitutes. As real abuses blended with sensationalism, Congress passed the Mann Act in 1910, prohibiting the interstate transport of women for immoral purposes. By 1918, reformers succeeded in banning previously tolerated red light districts in most cities. As with the liquor trade, progressives went after those who made money from misery. So red light district, in case you don't know, it's an area in cities that's reserved for prostitutes. And the term was first used by the U.S. resulted from the use of red lights to show that the prostitutes were open for business. Now, most progressives paid very little attention to the suffering of African Americans. The 1890s had been a low point for black citizens, most of whom still lived in the rural South. Across the region, the lynching of African Americans increased, as did restrictions on black voting and the use of segregated facilities. Signs decreeing for whites only appeared on drinking fountains and restrooms and, and in other public places. A few progressives condemned racial discrimination, but most ignored it or used it to political advantage. Throughout the South, white progressives and old guard politicians used the rhetoric of reform to support white supremacy. Such reformers won office by promising to disenfranchise African Americans to break the power of corrupt political machines that marshaled the black vote in the South, much as Northern machines did with immigrant voters. In the face of such discrimination, African Americans fought back. After the turn of the century, some black critics rejected the accommodation of Booker T. Washington's Atlantic Compromise. Washington's cautious approach counseled African Americans to accept segregation and work their way up the economic ladder by learning a vocational trade such as carpentry or mechanics. W.E.B. E. Du Bois, he's a professor or was a professor at Atlanta University, leveled the most stinging attack in The Souls of Black Folk in 1903. He saw no benefit for African Americans in sacrificing intellectual growth for narrow vocational training. Nor was he willing to accept the humiliating stigma that came from segregation in the South. A better future would come only if black citizens struggled politically to achieve suffrage and equal rights. Instead of exhorting African Americans to pull themselves up slowly from the bottom, Du Bois called on the talented tent, a cultural a cultured black vanguard to blaze a trail of protest against segregation, disenfranchisement, and discrimination. In 1905, he founded the Niagara Movement for Political and Economic Equality. Four years later, in 1909, a coalition of blacks and white reformers transformed the Niagara Movement into the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, the NAACP, after an ugly race riot had rocked Springfield, the capital of Illinois, in 1908. As with other progressive organizations, its membership was largely limited to the middle class. It worked to extend the principles of tolerance and equal opportunity in a colorblind flash fashion by mounting legal challenges to segregation and bigotry and pressing for protective legislation. By 1919, the NAACP had some 90,000 members in 300 branches across the country. 
accommodation was giving way to new combative organizations and new forms of protest. So reforming the system, you know, in the end, so many urban problems came back to overhauling government. Jane Addams learned as much outside the doors of her beloved whole house in Chicago. For months during the early 1890s, garbage had piled up on the streets. The filth and stench drove Adams and her fellow workers to City Hall in protest 700 times in one summer, but to no avail. In Chicago, as elsewhere, a corrupt band of city bosses turned garbage into a profitable plum for the company that paid the most for a contract to haul it away. In desperation, Adams submitted a bid for garbage removal in the ward. When it was thrown out on a technicality, she won an appointment as garbage inspector. For almost a year, she dogged collection carts, but boss politics kept things dirty. So Adams ran candidates in 1896 and 1898 against a local ward boss. They lost, but Adams kept up the fight for honest government and social reform at City Hall and the Illinois legislature and finally in Washington. Politics turned out to be the only way to clean things up. So in the smokestack cities of the Midwest, where the frustrations of the industrial and agricultural America were feeding on each other, the urban battleground furnished the middle class with the first test of political reform. A series of colorful and independent mayors demonstrated that cities could be run cleanly and humanely without changing the structure of government. Other cities across the country experimented with new forms of governing. In Detroit, shoe magnate Hazen Pingree became one of the first mayors to enact a reform program when elected in 1889. By the end of his fourth term, Detroit had new parks and public baths, ferry taxes, ownership of the local light plant, and a work relief program for victims of the Depression of 1893. In 1901, Cleveland Mayor Tom Johnson launched a similar reform campaign. Before he was through, municipal franchises had been limited to a fraction of their previous 99-year terms, and the city ran the utility company. By 1915, nearly two out of every three cities had copied some form of this gas and water socialism to control the runaway prices of utility companies. Tragedy sometimes dramatized the need to alter the very structure of government. On a hot September night in 1900, a tidal wave from the Gulf of Mexico smashed the port city of Galveston, Texas. The city sank into confusion. Business leaders stepped in with a new charter that replaced the mayor and city council with a powerful commission. Each of the five commissioners controlled a municipal department, and together they ran the city. Nearly 400 cities had adopted this plan by 1920. Expert commissioners enhanced efficiency and helped to check party rule in municipal government. In still other cities, elected officials appointed an outside expert or city manager to run things, the first in Staunton, Virginia, in 1908. Within a decade, 45 cities had city managers and commissioners running things. At lower levels, experts took charge of services. Engineers oversaw utilities, accountants, finances, doctors, and nurses. Public health, specially trained firefighters and police, and safety of citizens. So, charters granted by state governments defined the power of cities at the time. Rural farm interests generally dominated state legislatures and rarely gave cities adequate authority to levy taxes, set voting, or set voting requirements, draw budgets, or legislate reforms. State legislatures, too, found themselves under the influence of business interests, party machines, and county courthouse rings. Reformers, therefore, tried to place their candidates where they could do some good, in the governor's mansion. State progressivism, like urban reform, enjoyed its earliest success in the Midwest under the leadership of Robert La Follette of Wisconsin. 
Lafollette first won an election to Congress in 1885 by towing the Republican line of high tariffs and the gold standard. When a Republican boss offered him a bribe in a railroad case, Lafollette pledged to break the power of this corrupt influence. In 1900, he won the governorship of Wisconsin as an uncommonly, uncommonly, sorry, independent Republican. Over the next six years, Battle Bob Lafollette made Wisconsin, in the words of Theodore Roosevelt, the laboratory of democracy. Lafollette's Wisconsin idea produced the most comprehensive set of state reforms in American history. So the Wisconsin idea was a series of progressive reforms at the state level promoted by Robert Lafollette during his governorship of Wisconsin from 1901 to 1906. They, so they included primary elections, corporate property taxes, regulation of railroads, public utilities, supervision of public resources and the public interest. So now there's all these new laws regulating railroads, controlling corruption, and expanding the civil service. His direct primary weakened the hold of party bosses by transferring nominations from the party to the voters. LaFollette's Wisconsin created the first state income tax, the first state commission to oversee factory safety and sanitation, and the first legislative reference bureau at the University of Wisconsin. University-trained experts were now pouring into state government. So other states copied the Wisconsin idea or hatched their own. So all but three had enacted direct primaries by 1916. No reform gave voters more power in choosing candidates. To cut the power of party organizations and make office holders directly responsible to the public, progressives worked for three additional reforms. Initiative, which is voter introduction of legislation. There was also a referendum, which is voter enactment or repeal of laws. And recall, voter-initiated removal of elected officials. In 1913, the 17th Amendment to the Constitution permitted the direct election of senators. Previously, they had been chosen by state legislatures where political machines and corporate lobbyists controlled the the selections. In the West, with fewer people and more independent women, progressivism of all kinds thrived. Western states were the nation's first to grant women the right to vote. To protect their health, the Oregon legislature also limited the number of hours women could work. The reform was a paternal brand of progressivism designed to take care of women rather than empowering women to take care of themselves, as the right to vote did. The middle class of heavily urban California supported progressive Hiram Johnson's drive to oust political machines from cities in the state house. Colorado Governor John Shafroth fought the local political machine and pressed a bulky legislature to regulate railroad rates ensure ensure commercial bank deposits and create a public service commission like other progressives he also supported the direct primary almost every state established regulatory commissions with the power to hold public hearings examine company books and question officials some could set maximum prices and rates yet it was not always easy to find let alone serve the public good often commissioners found themselves refereeing battles within industries rather than between what progressives called the bad interests and the good people. Regulators also had to rely on the advice of experts drawn from the business community itself. Many commissions thus became captured by the industries they regulated. Capture, much more than corporate corruption, turned regulation industries' way. Social welfare received special 
attention from the states. The lack of workers' compensation for injury, illness, or death on the job had long drawn fire from reformers and labor leaders. American courts still operated on the common law assumption that employees accepted the risks of work. Workers or their families could collect damages only if they proved employer negligence. Most accident victims received nothing. In 1902, Maryland finally adopted the first Workers' Compensation Act. By 1916, most states required insurance for factory accidents, and over half had employer liability laws. Thirteen states also provided pensions for widows with dependent children. Often such working class reforms found advocates among women's associations, especially those concerned uh, with mothers, children, and working women. The Federation of Women's Clubs opened a crusade for mothers' pensions, a forerunner of aid to mothers with dependent children. When in 1912, the National Consumers League and other women's groups succeeded in establishing the Children's Bureau, it was the first federal welfare agency and the only female-run national bureau in the world. At a time when women lacked the vote, they nonetheless sowed the seeds of the welfare state. On September 6, 1901, at the Pan American Exposition in Buffalo, New York, Leon Chelsko's stood nervously in line. He was waiting to meet President William McKinley. Unemployed and bent on murder, Chalgos shuffled toward McKinley. As the president reached out, Chalgos fired two bullets into his chest. McKinley slumped into a chair. Eight days later, the president was dead. The mantle of power passed to Vice President Theodore Roosevelt. At 42, he was the youngest president ever to hold the office. Roosevelt's succession was a political accident. Party leaders had seen the weak vice presidency as a way of removing him from power, but the tragedy in Buffalo foiled their plans. Surely progressivism would have come to Washington without T.R., and while there, he was never its most daring advocate. In many ways, he was quite conservative. He saw reform as a way to avoid radical change. T.R., as so many Americans called him, was the scion of seven generations of wealthy, aristocratic New Yorkers. A sickly boy, he built his body through rigorous exercise, sharpened his mind through constant study, and pursued a life so strenuous that few could keep up. He learned to ride and shoot, roped cattle in the Dakota Badlands, mastered judo, and later in life climbed the Matterhorn, hunted African game, and explored the Amazon. In 1880, driven by an urge to lead and serve, Roosevelt won election to the New York State Assembly. In rapid succession, he became a civil service commissioner in Washington, New York City Police Commissioner, Assistant Secretary of the Navy, and the Rough Rider hero of the Spanish-American War. At the age of 40, he won election as Reform Governor of New York and two years later as Vice President. As President, Roosevelt brought to the executive mansion, he renamed it the White House, a passion for order, a commitment to the public, a sense of presidential possibilities. Most presidents believe that the Constitution set limits on their power, Roosevelt thought that the president could do anything not expressly forbidden in the document. Recognizing the value of publicity, he gave reporters the first press room in the White House and a chief executive worthy of near constant coverage. He was the first president to ride in an automobile, fly in an airplane, and dive in a submarine, and everyone knew it. To dramatize racial injustice, Roosevelt invited black educator Booker T. Washington to lunch at the White House in 1901. White Southern journalists called such race mingling treason, but for Roosevelt, the gesture served both principle and politics. His lunch with Washington was part of a black and tan strategy to build a biracial coalition among Southern Republicans.
He denounced lynching and appointed black Southerners to important federal offices in Mississippi and South Carolina. Sensing the limits of political feasibility, Roosevelt went no further. Perhaps his own racial narrowness stopped him, too. In 1906, when Atlanta exploded in a race riot that left 12 people dead, he said nothing. Later that year, he discharged without honor three entire companies of African-American troops because some of the soldiers were unjustly charged with having shot up Brownsville, Texas. All lost their pensions, including six winners of the Medal of Honor. The act stained Roosevelt's record. Congress acknowledged the wrong in 1972 by granting the soldiers honorable discharges. Roosevelt could not long follow the cautious course McKinley had charted. He had more energetic plans in mind for the country. He accepted growth, whether of business, labor, or agriculture, as natural. In his pluralistic system, big labor would counterbalance big capital. Big farm organizations would offset big food processors, and so on. Standing astride the mall, mediating when needed, was a big government that could ensure fairness. Later, as he campaigned for a second term in 1904, Roosevelt named his program the Square Deal. In a startling display of presidential initiative, Roosevelt in 1902 intervened in a strike that idled 140,000 miners and paralyzed the anthracite or hard coal industry. As winter approached, public resentment with the operators mounted when they refused even to recognize the miners' union, let alone negotiate. Roosevelt summoned both sides to the White House. John A. Mitchell, the young president of the United Mine Workers, agreed to arbitration, but mine owners balked. Roosevelt leaked word to Wall Street that the army would take over the mines if management did not yield. Seldom had a recent president acted so decisively and never on behalf of strikers. In late October 1902, the owners settled by granting miners a 10% wage hike and a nine-hour day in return for increases in coal prices and no recognition of the union. Roosevelt was equally prepared to intervene on the side of management as he did when he sent federal troops to end strikes in Arizona in 1903 and Colorado in 1904. His aim was to establish a vigorous presidency ready to deal squarely with both sides. Roosevelt especially needed to face the issue of economic concentration. Financial power had become consolidated and giant trusts following a wave of mergers at the end of the century. Government investigations revealed rampant corporate abuses, rebates, collusion, watered stock, payoffs to government officials. Now, watered stock is stock issued in excess of the assets of a company. The term derives from the practice of some ranchers who made their cattle drink large amounts of water before weighing them for sale. Now, the conservative courts showed very little willingness to break up the giants or blunt their power. In United States versus E.C. Knight in 1895, the Supreme Court had crippled the Sherman Antitrust Act by ruling that the law applied only to commerce that crossed state lines and not to manufacturing even when products were sold in another state. The decision left the American Sugar Refining Company in control of 98% of the nation's sugar factories. In his first State of the Union message, Roosevelt told Congress that he did not oppose trusts. As he saw it, large corporations were not only inevitable, but also more productive than smaller corporations. He wanted to regulate them to make them fairer and more efficient. Only then would the economic order be humanized, its victims protected, and class violence avoided. Like individuals, trusts had to be held to, rest to strict standards of morality. Conduct, not size, was the yardstick TR used to measure good and bad trusts. 
With the progressive's faith in the power of publicity and a regulator's need for the facts, Roosevelt moved immediately to strengthen the federal power of investigation. He called for the creation of a Department of Labor and Commerce with the Bureau of Corporations that could force companies to hand over their records. Congressional conservatives shuddered at the prospect of putting corporate books on display. Finally, after Roosevelt charged John D. Rockefeller was orchestrate charged that he was uh, orchestrating the opposition, Congress enacted the legislation and provided the Justice Department with additional staff to prosecute antitrust cases. In 1902, to demonstrate the power of government, Roosevelt had his attorney general file an antitrust suit against the Northern Securities Company. The Mammoth Holding Company nearly monopolized railroads in the Northwest, setting its high freight rates and ignoring local protests. Here was a symbol of the bad trust. A trust-conscious nation cheered as the Supreme Court ordered the company to dissolve in 1904. Ultimately, Roosevelt, the Roosevelt administration brought suit against 44 giants. Despite his reputation for trust-busting, Roosevelt always preferred continuous regulation. The problems of the railroads, for example, were nearly underscored by a recent round of mergers and acquisitions that contributed to higher freight rates. In 1903, Roosevelt pressed Congress to pass the Elkins Act, which gave the Ineffective Interstate Commerce Commission, the ICC, the power to end rebates. Even the railroads cheered because the act saved them from the costly practice of granting special reductions to large shippers. By the election of 1904, the president's initiatives have won in broad popular support. He trounced his two rivals, Democrat Alton B. Parker, jurist from New York, and Eugene Debs of the Socialist Party. No longer was he a political accident. Conservatives in his own party opposed Roosevelt's meddling in the private sector, but progressives demanded still more regulation of the railroads. In 1906, the president finally reached a compromise typical of his restrained approach to reform. The Hepburn Railway Act allowed ICC to set maximum rates and to regulate sleeping car companies, ferries, bridges, and terminals. Progressives did not gain the provision for the disclosure of company value or service costs they sought, but the Hepburn Act drew Roosevelt near to his goal of continuous regulation of business. Extending the umbrella of federal protection to consumers, Roosevelt belatedly threw his weight behind two campaigns for healthy foods and drugs. Several pure food and drug bills had already died at the hands of lobbyists despite a presidential endorsement. The appearance in 1906 of Upton Sinclair's book, The Jungle, about the meatpacking industry spurred Congress to act. The novel contained a brief but dramatic description of the slaughter of cattle infected with tuberculosis, of meat covered with rat dung, and of men falling into cooking vats. Readers paid scant attention to the workers, the true object of Sinclair's sympathy, but their stomachs turned at what they might be eating. The Pure Food and Drug Act of 1906 sailed through Congress and the Meat Inspection Act soon followed. Roosevelt came late to the cause of consumer protection, but on cons conservation, he led the nation. An outdoors enthusiast, he galvanized public concern over the reckless use of natural resources. His chief forester, Gifford Pinchot, persuaded them, him that plan management under federal guidance was needed to protect the natural domain. Cutting trees must be synchronized with tree planting. Oil should be pumped from the ground under controlled conditions, and so on. In the western states, water was the problem. Economic growth, even survival, depended on it. As uneven local and state water policies sparked controversy, violence, and waste, many progressives campaigned for a federal program to replace the chaotic web of rules. 
The Reclamation Act of 1902 set aside proceeds from the sale of public lands for irrigation projects. Its passage signaled a progressive step toward the conservationist goal of rational resource development. Conservation, the form of environmental protection most appealing to to progressives, often came into conflict with the more radical vision of preservationists who wanted a wilderness left untouched by human hands. As early as 1864, naturalist George Perkins Marsh sounded an alarm. In Man in Nature or Physical Geography as Modified by Human Action, Marsh warned that human action enhanced by technology could damage the planet. Already, he wrote that agricultural and industrial revolutions have begun to erode land, deforest timberland, dry up watersheds, and endanger plants and animals. Another naturalist, the wilderness philosopher John Muir, took Marshall's call, Marsh's call a step further. As a boy, the Scottish-born Muir had immigrated to the United States with his family. Trained as an engineer, he nearly lost his sight when a sharp file punctured his right eye. His sight miraculously returned, and he vowed to be true to himself by following his passion, the study of the wild world. Study turned to activism in 1892 when Muir co-founded the Sierra Club. He hoped to maintain such natural wonders as Hetch Hetchy Valley and his beloved Yosemite Park in a state of forever wild to benefit future generations. Many conservationists saw these valleys only as sites for dams and reservoirs to manage and control water. Controversy flared after 1900 when San Francisco announced plans to create a city reservoir by flooding the Hetch Hetchy Valley. For 13 years, Muir waged a publicity campaign against the reservoir. Pinchot enthusiastically backed San Francisco's claim. Roosevelt, torn by his friendship with Muir, did so less soundly, or less loudly. Not until 1913 did President Woodrow Wilson finally decide the issue in favor of San Francisco. Conservation had won over preservation. Over the protests of cattle and timber interests, Roosevelt added nearly 200 million acres to government forest reserves, placed coal and mineral lands, oil reserves, and water power sites in the public domain, and enlarged the national park system. When Congress balked, Roosevelt appropriated another 17 million acres of forest before the legislators could pass a bill limiting him. Roosevelt also set in motion national congresses and commissions on conservation and mobilized governors across the country. Like a good progressive, he sent hundreds of experts to work applying science, education, and technology to environmental problems. Okay, so picking right back up here, we're going to be we've been talking about Teddy Roosevelt and the progressive era and everything. So now we're going to start to move a little forward, still in the progressive era, but look at his successor, Taft, William Howard Taft. Uh, he, in the last uh, podcast, when we talked about how during the after the Spanish-American War, America gets the annexation of the Philippines. And William Howard Taft is going to be the first civilian governor of the territory. Now, in 1909, just to kind of set the scene here, on March 4th, 1909, you know, it's snowing outside the White House. William Howard Taft is, you know getting ready for his inauguration. Over breakfast with Teddy Roosevelt, he was, you know, just kind of riding the tail of these recent Republican victories. He is Roosevelt's hand-picked successor. And Taft, he had beaten the Democratic candidate, William Jennings Bryan, in the great commoner's third and last bid for the presidency. Republicans had retained control of Congress as well as a host of northern legislatures. Reform was at high tide. Taft is eager to continue the Roosevelt program. And Roosevelt called him Will, like to call him Will, 
but he was a distinguished jurist, a public servant. He was the first American governor general of the Philippines, and I mentioned Roosevelt's secretary of war as well. And Taft had a lot of administrative skill, personal charm, but he didn't really like all the political maneuvering stuff. So he preferred instead conciliation to confrontation. And judicious reasoning uh, to emotional eruptions, argumentation to decisiveness. And trouble began kind of early when the progressive... The progressives in the House moved to curb the near dictatorial power of the conservative speaker, Joseph Cannon. And so Taft waffled for supporting and then abandoning them to preserve the tariff reductions he's seeking. When the progressives later broke Cannon's power without Taft's help, they scorned the president. Taft's compromise was wasted. Senate protectionists peppered the tariff bill with so many amendments that rates jumped nearly to their old levels from before. Late in 1909, the rift between Taft and the progressives reached the breaking point in a dispute over conservation. And Taft had appointed Richard Ballinger, Secretary of the Interior, over the objections of Roosevelt's old friend and mentor, the Chief Forester Pinchot. And when Ballinger opened a million acres of public lands for sale, Pinchot charged that shady dealings led Ballinger to transfer Alaskan public coal lands to a syndicate that included J.P. Morgan. Early in 1910, Taft fired Pinchot for insubordination. A lot of angry progressives saw the Ballinger-Pinchot controversy as another betrayal by Taft. They were kind of looking longingly across the Atlantic because... T.R. Teddy Roosevelt, he's, you know, stalking and hunting the big game in Africa. And they were kind of like, come back, you know, we need you back here. But despite his failures, Taft is no conservative pawn. For the next two years, he pushed Congress to enact a progressive program regulating safety standards for mines and railroads, creating a federal children's bureau, setting an eight-hour workday for federal employees. Taft's support of an income tax, sometimes heated, sometimes lukewarm, was finally decisive, Early in 1913, the 16th Amendment created the first federal income tax. And historians are going to view this as one of the most important reforms of the 20th century because it eventually is going to generate the revenue for a lot of new social programs that the federal government has. So now they finally have the money coming in to pay for all of these programs they are trying to enact. But in June of 1910, Roosevelt came home laden with a lot of hunting trophies. He's exuberant as ever. He found Taft unhappy, and progressive Republicans were threatening to defect to the Democratic Party. Party loyalty kept Roosevelt quiet through most of 1911, but in October, Taft perked on him personally on the sensitive manner manner of busting up trusts. And so like T.R., Taft accepted trust as being natural, but demanded more impartially that all trusts, whether good or bad, he prevented from restraining trade. In four years as president, Taft had brought nearly twice the antitrust suits that Roosevelt had in seven years. In in October 1911, the Justice Department charged U.S. Steel with having violated the Sherman Antitrust Act by acquiring the Tennessee Coal and Iron Company, TCI. Roosevelt regarded the action as a personal rebuke, since he himself had allowed U.S. Steel to proceed with the acquisition. Taft uh, was playing small, mean, and foolish politics, was what T.R. was saying. Already in a speech at Osawatomie, Kansas, 
1910, Roosevelt had sharpened his differences by Taft with Taft by outlining a program of very far-sweeping national reforms. His new nationalism recognized the value of consolidation in the economy, whether in the growth of big business or big labor, but insisted on protecting the interests of individuals through big government. The new nationalism went much further. It stressed planning and efficiency under a powerful executive as steward of the public welfare. It promised new taxes on incomes and inheritances and greater regulation of industry. It embraced social justice, especially workers' compensation for accidents, minimum wages and maximum hours, child labor laws, and equal suffrage, a nod to women and loyal black Republicans. So Roosevelt, being a very cautious reformer as president, uh, he grew bold campaigning for the White House at this point. My hat is in the ring. Roosevelt's going to announce in February of 1912. The very enormously popular former president won most of the primaries, but by the time the Republicans met in Chicago in June of 1912, Taft had used presidential patronage and promises to secure the nomination. So, very frustrated Roosevelt, he bolts and takes the progressive Republicans with him. Two months later, amid a lot of courses of onward Christian soldiers, delegates to the newly formed Progressive Party will nominate Roosevelt for the presidency. And he says, I'm feeling like a bull moose. And progressives suddenly had a symbol for their new party. The Democrats met in Baltimore, jubilant over the prospect of a divided Republican Party. So delegates are going to choose as their candidate, Woodrow Wilson, the progressive governor of New Jersey. Wilson wisely concentrated his fire on Roosevelt. He counters the new nationalism with his new freedom, promoting inefficiency and reducing opportunity. Like he says, bigness is a sin. You know, it crowds out all that competition, promotes inefficiency and reduces all the opportunity. But his new freedom, it rejects all that economic consolidation that Roosevelt had embraced for so long. So only by... Strictly limiting the size of businesses, could the free market be preserved? And only by keeping government small could individual freedom be preserved. Liberty, Wilson cautions, has never come from government, only from the limitation of governmental power. So increasingly, voters found Taft beside the point. In an age of reform, even the socialists looked good. Better led financed and organized than ever, the Socialist Party had increased its membership to nearly 135,000 by 1912. The party had also had an appealing candidate in Eugene Debs. See, he was a homegrown Indiana radical. He had won 400,000 votes for president in 1904. Now in 1912, he summoned voters to make the working class the ruling class. On election day, voters gave progressivism a resounding endorsement Wilson won 6.3 million votes, Roosevelt 4.1 million, Taft just over 3.6 million. Debs received almost a million votes. Together with the two progressive candidates, they amassed a 3 to 1 margin. But the Republican split had broken the party's hold on national politics. So for the first time since 1896, a Democrat would sit in the White House and with his party in control of Congress. Soon after the election, Woodrow Wilson made it proud or made a proud of startling confession to the chairman of the Democratic National Committee. God ordained that I should be the next president of the United States. 
to the White House, Wilson brought a sense of destiny and a passion for reform. All his life, he had believed he was meant to accomplish great things. And he did. So, under him, we're going to see progressivism peak. (coughs) Excuse me. All right, so from the moment of his birth, 1856, just kind of giving a little background of Woodrow Wilson, uh, he felt he could not escape destiny. It was all around him in his family's Presbyterian faith and the sermons of his minister father, dinnertime talk, ran the unbending belief in a world predetermined by God and ruled by saved souls and elect. Wilson ached to be one of them and behaved as though he were. Like most Southerners, he loved the Democratic Party. He hated the tariff, accepted racial separation. Under his presidency, segregation is going to return to Washington for the first time since Reconstruction. An early career in law bored him, so he turned to history and political science and becomes a professor. I believe it was at Yale or Princeton. But uh, when he was professor... But his studies persuaded him that a modern president must act as a prime minister, directing and united his party, molding legislation and public opinion, exerting continuous leadership. In 1910, after a stormy tenure as head of President Princeton University, Wilson was helped by the Democratic Party bosses to win the governorship of New Jersey. In 1912, they're going to help him again, this time to the presidency of the nation. So as governor... Wilson had led New Jersey on the path of progressive reform. As president, he was a model of progressive leadership. More than Roosevelt, he shaped policy and legislation. He went to Congress to let members know he intended to work personally with them. He kept party discipline tight and mobilized public opinion when Congress refused to act. Lowering the high tariff was Wilson's first order of business. Progressives had long attacked the tariff as another example of the power of trusts. By protecting American manufacturers, Wilson argued, such barriers weakened the competition that he cherished. When the Senate threatened to raise rates, the new president appealed directly to the public. Industrious and insidious lobbyists were blocking reform, he cried to reporters. The Underwood-Simmons tariff of 1913 marked the first downward revision in 19 years and the biggest since before the Civil War. To compensate for lost revenue, Congress enacted a graduated income tax under the newly adopted 16th Amendment. It applied solely to corporations and the tiny fraction of Americans who earned more than $4,000 a year. And nonetheless began a momentous shift in government revenue from its 19th century base, public lands, alcohol taxes, customs duties, to its 20th century base, personal and corporate incomes. Wilson turned next to the perennial problems of money and banking. Early in 1913, a congressional committee revealed that a few powerful banks controlled the nation's credit system. They could choke Wilson's free market by raising interest rates or lowering the supply of money. Either would tighten the money available for loans to businesses, both large and small. As a banking reform bill moved through Congress in 1913, opinion was divided among conservatives who wanted centralized and private control, rural Democrats who wanted regional banks under local bankers, and populists and progressives, including Bryan and LaFollette, who wanted government control. Wilson comprised in the Federal Reserve Act of 1913, or he compromised, sorry. Don't have my glasses on today, so I don't see my notes. Sorry, guys. But the new Federal Reserve System contained 12 regional banks that were all scattered across the country. 
but it also created a central Federal Reserve Board in Washington, appointed by the president to supervise the system. The board could regulate credit and the money supply by setting the interest rate it charged member banks, by buying or selling government bonds, and by issuing paper currency called Federal Reserve Notes. When Wilson finally took on the trust, he inched forward the new nationalism of Theodore Roosevelt. The Federal Trade Commission Act of 1914 created a bipartisan executive agency to oversee business activity. The end, to enforce orderly competition, was distinctly Wilsonian. But the means, an executive commission to regulate commerce, were pure Roosevelt. Roosevelt would have stopped there, but Wilson made good on his campaign pledge to attack trusts. The Clayton Antitrust Act of 1914 barred some of the worst corporate practices. Price discrimination, holding companies, and interlocking directorates, which are directors of one corporate board sitting on others. Despite Wilson's bias against size, the advantages of large-scale production and distribution were inescapable. In practice, his administration chose to regulate rather than break up business bigness. The Justice Department filed fewer antitrust suits than it had under the Taft administration. So for all of Wilson's impressive accomplishments, voters seemed uninspired by the new freedom. Off-year election losses in 1914 pushed Wilson toward the social reforms of the new nationalism. Earlier, he had criticized them as paternalistic and unconstitutional. In 1916, as his re-election approached, he signaled a change when he nominated his close advisor, Louis Brandeis, to the Supreme Court. The progressive Brandeis had fought for the social reforms lacking from Wilson's legislative agenda. His appointment also broke the tradition of anti-Semitism that had previously kept Jews such as Brandeis off the court. So in other ways, Wilson showed a willingness to pursue progressive reforms for workers and farmers previously absent from his legislative plans. He pressed for laws improving working conditions of merchant seamen and setting an hour, eight-hour day for workers on the interstate railroads. He supported the Keating Owen Child Labor Act, 1916, that restricted the sale of items made by children and sold across state lines. Farmers benefited from legislation providing them with low-interest loans. And just before the election of 1916, Wilson intervened to avert a nationwide strike of rail workers all reflected a turn toward the progressive goals of social justice and social welfare. Woodrow Wilson's administration capped a decade and a half of heady reform. Seeing chaos in the modern industrial city, progressive reformers worked to reduce the damage of poverty and the hazards of industrial work, control rising immigration, and spread a middle-class ideal of morality. In city halls and state legislatures, they tried to break the power of corporate interests and entrenched political machines. In Washington, they enlarged government and broadened its mission from caretaker to promoter of public welfare. The results, however mixed, set the agenda of reform for the remainder of the 20th century. So just kind of in review, the United States is not going to be alone in all of these progressive efforts. The whole machine age is going to trigger a wave of progressive reform all across the industrialized world. Movements for social justice and social welfare sprang up first in Great Britain, where the Industrial Revolution began. And there, reformers publicized the plights of women and children in factories and mines as early as the 1820s. The resulting Factory Act of 1833 outlawed child labor and textile mills for those under the age of nine. The Mines Act of 1842 made it illegal to employ women as well as children younger than 10 and work underground. 
In 1884, Toynbee Hall, the world's first settlement house, opened in London's East End to minister to the needs of the poor, and it became the model for Jane Addams' whole house in Chicago. In political forms, the world sometimes lagged behind the United States, especially on the issue of women's suffrage. So, except in Scandinavia, most European women did not receive the vote until after World War I. Despite the democratic revolutions that swept across Latin America in the 19th century, National woman's suffrage was opposed by the Catholic Church and did not come to Ecuador until 1929 in El Salvador in 1939. Asia was slower still, often because colonial rulers denied or limited suffrage or because patriarchal Asian societies looked on women as subordinate to men. So only in 1950, for example, after India achieved independence, did women receive the right to vote. So I hope you guys enjoy this progressive chapter I really liked it myself so I hope to see you guys next time keep in touch I'm gonna have some government ones coming up government political podcast coming up soon on the podcast <laughs>